you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 21? This is one of the accounts of what is called the triumphal entry. I read, I don't know if it was a lesson or a sermon this week, where the one who penned it said, at least from man's perspective, it was really a triumphal tragedy. (laughs) It didn't end well at the end of the week, did it? But the first day of the next week it did. So we're going to go with the traditional understanding and call this the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. If you follow along, please, from Matthew chapter 21. I'll read through verse 17, although verse 17 is a transition verse. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies You have prepared praise. So leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. As we read the four Gospels, we find that they present from different angles the genealogy, the life, the birth, the death and resurrection, and the final commission of Christ Jesus. They are like four news reporters of our day who would go out to a newsworthy story and each of them tape and then go back to their respective stations, and all four of them might present the exact same thing, but they will not present it in exactly the same way. None of them is wrong. They're all right, but you have to look at it from different angles, and I think that's very good rather than just one news program, one newscaster. Such is what we have with the gospel writers. They're not all exactly the same. Listen, if they were, we'd only need one. Each one emphasizes a different aspect of Jesus, and there is no contradiction, though there are those who try to point out contradictions that they perceive. 
We turn to Matthew, we see Jesus presented as king. We turn to Mark, we see Jesus presented as servant. And you'll notice in Mark the word immediately used over and over again. In Luke, Jesus is presented as the son of man. Luke, being a doctor, would be much more familiar with physical things. And then, of course, John presents Jesus as the son of God. Today we're in Matthew. His gospel primarily presents Jesus as king and was written primarily to a Jewish audience. So in his gospel, we would expect, and I quote, he demonstrates over and over again that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the promised king. Matthew points out many Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He writes about Christ's genealogy, tracing it back to David. He speaks of Jesus as being born of a virgin, being born in Bethlehem, going to Egypt, and then to Nazareth. Even while on the earth, Jesus himself proved his deity, his sovereign kingly authority over and over again by demonstrating complete power over disease and sickness and other physical afflictions, including death. He possessed absolute authority over both the natural and the supernatural world. He even had the authority and power to forgive sins. In our text today, Jesus is now in the final week, what we call the Passion Week, of his life and ministry before he goes to the cross. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. He's been thinking of that and heading for Jerusalem for some time now. And he knows that when he arrives there, he's going to suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and scribes, who finally will condemn him to death. He then will be turned over to the Romans, who will afflict him, humiliate him, and crucify him. But Jesus also knows that on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Listen to what he says in the Gospel of Luke previously. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. Chapter 18 of Luke, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked. He will be shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. So in this Palm Sunday 2018, what I want to do is go back and look at Jesus' declaration this day. Throughout his earthly ministry, he has demonstrated that he is a king. He is sovereign. He has authority over all things. Today, as we look at this, we're going to see him not only, declare, not only demonstrate, but declare publicly that he is the king, openly. And it's interesting, he does it by connecting his entrance to four, at least four, Old Testament prophecies. And I'd like to point those out this morning, if you'll bear with me. In verse 1 of Matthew 21, we see him approaching. He comes to a place called Bethphage. Interestingly enough, Bethphage means the house of unripe figs. Figs had an interesting uh, connection to the ministry of Jesus. And so as he comes to this little village, he knows that Jerusalem is the next place he will encounter. And both the fact of his entrance, that is the fulfillment of prophecy, 
and the purpose of his coming to be king are very significant for us this day. He is publicly presenting himself as the king, and not just of the Jews, but for all nations, for all who submit to his kingly authority and confess him as Lord and Savior. By the end of this week, he will say in John chapter 18, Pilate says to him, So, you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world. Jesus is declaring his purpose in coming from heaven. Not to be just a wonderful example, not to just be a friend of the lonely, but to be the king and Lord and sovereign God over all things. At the end of verse 1, we begin reading about that entry, and he announces his kingship in that entry. In my reading the last couple of weeks, John Piper, many, many, many years ago, spoke on this subject and pointed out uh, some things that I've been very helpfully uh, instructed in my own life. And so I want to borrow some of John's ideas and then kind of mix them in the stew pot with my own and present to you this morning this public declaration of Jesus as King. First, I want to ask a question that was asked of me in my reading. Why should we even consider or be concerned about Jesus being the King when he comes into Jerusalem? Why is it important? Why is it significant? Well, to help us feel the the wonder of this brief season of salvation in the history of the world, we want to consider this event in light of the fact that the day is coming when Jesus is coming again as king, but a different kind of part of his kingship. This day, going into Jerusalem, is a declaration of his king now, but there is a not yet already dimension of this. Already, now, but not yet fully as he will be in the future. We read about that future kingship in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. He's on a white horse, they're following on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And here it is, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now on that day, when the kingship of Jesus appears in the skies, it will be too late for someone to decide whether or not they're going to bow before him. It'll be too late to acknowledge that he is king to the salvation of their soul. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 says, Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. And I believe that what Matthew is saying to us today, through the way that Jesus proclaims his kingship in this passage, is that he wants us to hear him. He wants us to see him. Jesus is king. And his kingship is not just limited. It's not provincial or tribal or national. 
It is international. It is global. It is universal. Now, right now, at the present time, it is for those who are meek and lowly, who are seeking penitent sinners to acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? It's not the noble, it's not the mighty, it's not the impressive, it's not the educated, it's not the rich that God calls unto Himself, but those who are broken, those who are humble, those who are meek. Jesus will, in our text, in a matter of days, He will shed His own blood to save anyone and everyone who will receive His free gift of amnesty, heard that word a lot, haven't you, and come over, as it were, to His side and acknowledge Him as King. And until He comes again, this is the wonder of His kingship now, that as King, He is gathering a kingdom. Awful lot of conversation about King and kingdom and millennium etc., etc. But one thing I believe is absolutely true and certain. Jesus Christ is King now. Acts chapter 2. Peter tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, He was raised from the dead to sit on His throne. Those who sit on thrones are kings. Is it to the full dimension, the universal dimension that it will be? No, but He's still is king. And on this day, he's announcing that and declaring that to those around him. Now here's the point with that first question. Why should we study this? It is far better, my friends, to acknowledge and bow before King Jesus now willingly than to one day bow unwillingly. We'll get into it in our study of the book of Philippians. But because Jesus was faithful became a man, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, which is Lord, every knee will bow. Every person in heaven, on earth, and underneath the earth will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, is King to the glory of God the Father. It is better this day to do it now, while there is hope for the salvation and redemption of my soul, than to wait for that day when it will be too late to be part of His family, but I still will acknowledge that He is the King. So what is it that Matthew is trying to show to us? What is it that's being told to us in regard to this declaration? I think it's a fourfold declaration in regard to Jesus being king and being the king of his kingdom. Now in verse 1, the middle of verse 1, down through verse 11, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The question is, how does he enter? He comes in on a donkey, actually on the foal of a donkey. And he is declaring to us here both the nature and the focus of his kingdom. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 is the Old Testament reference. Actually, I'm going to include verse 10 because I think they should be together. Listen to these verses, please. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. And Jesus quotes that. Your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace. Notice to whom? 
the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from river, the river, to the ends of the earth. The entire world will be under the scope of His sovereign kingship. The nature of His kingship, never before has a king ridden into spotlight of victory on a donkey. That's just not the way you do it. Jesus would not enter Jerusalem as just a pilgrim or even just as a rabbi as he had done in the past. This time he would enter into Jerusalem in a manner that would declare to all who he was. He's the king, but not like any other king. He would ride into Jerusalem in a humble manner on the colt of a donkey. Usually a conquering king would come riding on a war steed or at least a carefully groomed white stallion. And that will be the manner of Jesus' return. We read a moment ago in Revelation 19, but not now. Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus will return on a white horse, riding at the head of armies of heaven. But for this entrance, this day into Jerusalem, Jesus did not come as the leader of a victorious army. He came as a humble servant who was nonetheless king. This is the nature of his kingdom. So why do his people always want to take up swords and do so much fighting? Do you know how Islam has spread? Bow or die, or convert and bow or die. Someone comes into the kingdom of God by humbling themselves and acknowledging Jesus Christ as the humble Son of God who died for their sins. And what's the focus of his kingship? Listen, we get so self-centered, and I say that including myself in America, and I know it's a danger. We get so consumed with us and our ministry and our church and our country that we forget there are seven point some billion people in the world. 2.4 billion of them have never one time heard the name of Jesus Christ. They are included in that glorious plan of redemption. Wow, Pastor Ed, I hope they hear. Well, they will if somebody goes and tells them. Listen, I believe in the doctrine of election. Put it right out there. God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God has elected his people. I'll, I'll, I'll die on that mountain. But I'll also say there's another mountain right next to it. Every person who's been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world must hear the gospel or they will not be converted. That's where you and I have to live. That's where you and I have to feel the burden and the spiritual pressure to get the gospel to them. We must pray, we must give, and we must go. John Piper said it this way, there's only two kinds of people in the church, goers and senders. We've invented a third category called the disobedient. Don't want to be part of that. So everyone in this congregation this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, this is not an option. This is part and parcel of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is advancing. 
It advances by those who've received His grace and they take that or send those who can to hear the gospel. Can I ask you a question? I'm, I'm not saying this chiding you. Has that ever gripped your heart? There's so many in this nation who are content to just drop a few bucks on the offering plate or send some money to the missionary organization. Whew, done my job. No, no, no. The focus of the kingdom of God is the world. Jesus died for every tribe, every nation, every kingdom, every people, and each one of those will have at least one representative. And I think there's about 22 or 2300 people groups, ethnic groups, who still have yet to hear the gospel. That's why it's important to believe this. That's why it's important to embrace this. And that's why it's important to respond to the kingship of Jesus Christ. Twice in the Psalms, I think it's Psalm 97 and Psalm 99. How does it begin? Our God reigns. Our God. He's the only one who reigns. He's king on His throne. And you need to understand who He is. You need to hear about Him. And you need to bow before Him as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. Confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Secondly, there's another part of this public declaration. Verses 12 and 13, if you look at that with me. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And here, you'll notice on your notes, he quotes another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's the image of the family of God, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Again, all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. What is the point of this being shown as King Jesus is describing and declaring his kingship? It's just this. The primary characteristic of those in his kingdom when they do life together you ready? It's prayer. I've challenged other churches at times to take the amount of time they spend together and do life. And I ask this question, how much is spent in corporate prayer on your face before God asking Him to do His work in and through us? Jesus quotes the My house shall be called a house of not activity, not fun, not programs, not committees, not outreach. That's not the primary. All of those things. The primary thing about his house, about his people, when they gather together to do life together, is prayer. There was a day when congregations were afraid to make any decision, any decision, until they first of all got before God and prayed. Their families were instructed. Mothers and fathers did that in their homes, and God answered prayer and moved. 
That's the primary characteristic of His kingdom. And that passage in Isaiah, the context is the coming kingdom of God. And again, the context is global, not just national. If God is pleased and allows me, I have three trips planned for India this year. One of the things that struck me with India just convicted me of my my Christian life as well as a pastor. They don't do anything without praying. Brother Ed, yes, Pastor Dave Doss, let's get in the car. We gotta go we gotta go to the village and minister. Okay, that's fine. We jump in the car and I put my seatbelt on. He says, Wait, let's pray. Oh yeah, okay, that's a good idea. Yeah, okay. We get to the place where we're gonna go. Stop before we get out of the car, let's pray. Wow. So we go in and do ministry and praying throughout the ministry. We come back to the car after we're done. He says, okay, let's stop and pray. I'm thinking, where's this coming from? I'm trying to be honest. We get back to the house where Bethel Church, where he, he lives and ministers, and he says, before we get out of the car, let's pray. And let's go inside and let's reflect upon what God did and let's pray again. All they do is pray. Well, do you know what's happening in India in places like that? Are you ready for this? Do you know why it's not happening in America? Primary characteristic of the kingdom of God and the citizens in that kingdom, it's a house of prayer. It's a house of prayer. And I wrote myself this note. Yet another reason to seriously consider having regular seasons of prayer whenever the house is gathered together. Of all the activities that characterize God's house, prayer should be the most important. He uses a third Old Testament reference in verse 14. Would you look please? And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. What would that reference be? Well, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10, that's where it comes from. And I quote, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, do not be afraid. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, please notice, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. And the end of that passage, he talks about everlasting joy. So what is this characteristic? What is Jesus declaring in this passage? In this reference, I believe he's saying that my kingdom is going to be a kingdom of compassion. And it's going to be characterized by real, everlasting joy. Again, two things. Notice, this is a pretty public declaration, not off in some corner. And what would Jesus secondly be demonstrating here? Well, it's interesting. If we go back to Matthew chapter 11, and I don't know if I have that on your outline. I think I do. Do you remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a great man of God, but he was also human. And he ended up in prison. (laughs) And as often happens to those who are involved in regular ministry, he's sitting in his jail cell one day and he said, you know what? Maybe I got this thing all wrong. 
maybe Jesus isn't really the Messiah. Maybe he's really not the king. Maybe I'm spending a lot of time spinning my wheels for no reason at all. So he sends some people back to ask Jesus, listen, when Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Jesus, he sent word by his disciples, John's disciples, and said, are you the one that we're looking for or should we look for someone else? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? Are you the one that the Old Testament has talked about for so long or should we look somewhere else? Because this, you know, this don't seem to be working, Jesus. This ain't how I planned it. What am I doing in prison serving you? Now, please notice the answer of Jesus. Jesus answers the disciples and said, Go back and tell John what you hear and see. Are you ready? The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. What is Jesus saying there? John, you're smart enough to know the Old Testament. You guys go back and tell him what's happening and immediately their minds will go back to that passage and he'll come to the conclusion, conclusion, yeah, this is the king. Look at all that the king is doing. He's come to do this and it's happening. Compassion. Joy characterizes his kingdom. Fourthly, in verses 15 and 16, Please notice. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were mad. They were angry. And they said to him, Do you hear, Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus answered with one word, Yeah. And in parentheses, let me ask you a question. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? This final aspect of the kingdom of God of which Jesus is publicly declaring is this. It is inclusive. None are left out who come before God and acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he goes back to Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how wonderful, how glorious is your name in all the earth. When I consider the sun, the moon, the stars, and all these things, Lord, I ask the question, who am I? What is man that you would visit him? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic, majesty, how kingly is your name in all the earth. And so he quotes from that passage. Again, notice two things. He declares his kingship by the way that he responds to the various peoples in the crowd. In verse 8, the crowds are spreading their cloaks on the road in front of him. By the way, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, there's at least one reference of this happening in the Bible. Jehu, 2 Kings 9.13. But in verse 9, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, salvation to the son of David, that is the hope for king like David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, a reference to Psalm 118. But then in verse 15, the children are shouting the very same things, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, the king is here, the king is here. What happened? How did the chief priest respond? They got upset. Do you hear what these children are saying? Now listen, they could have said, do you hear what these crowds are saying? You see what they're doing when they put their cloaks on the ground? They can't believe that Jesus is letting all this stand unchallenged. 
So Jesus answers their question with one simple word. Yeah, I hear. Yeah, I see. I do. I not only hear it, I planned it. And I'm going to receive it. And I would gladly receive it from you as well. And he would gladly receive it from us as well today. Quoting Psalm 8, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Think on that for a little while. How young children. It's interesting in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This, listen folks and parents, listen to me. I'm on this end of life having raised my children and now trying to struggle with my grandchildren. You better capture their hearts and catechize them and teach them and train them while they're young. While they're young. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know verses 15 and 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, blah, 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 blah. But do you know what the verses say just before that? Timothy, from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation. You know what that word child is in the Greek? It's the word infant. Have a tape at home still. Yeah, but little children are too young to learn all that doctrine. Really? Somebody turned my wife and I on to catechism training. Nothing great about me. I bless the Lord for George Doxey. I had an 18-year-old or 18-month-old daughter who knew about 60 or 70 questions and answers to the shorter catechism. Who made you? God. It all started with my oldest daughter standing in the front seat. I'm not, I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm challenging you, moms and dads. And the Sunday school department we have here, whatever we do, we need to train and catechize and get the Word of God in their minds and hearts. Give the Holy Spirit something to work on when He comes and convicts them of sin so they'll know what sin is in salvation. My oldest daughter, Dawn, was standing. That, you didn't have to have car seats. You didn't even have to have seat belts. If today they saw my daughter standing there, they'd lock us up in a heartbeat. Hey, Dawn. Hey, Dad. Who made you? Give me a cookie. <laughs> Answer, God. Okay. Two, three, four times a day. Dawn, who made you? And then one day she said, Da. Wow. Question number two. Why did God make you? For his own goby. What else did God make? All tings. I'll never forget the day, ever. She was about five or six years old. We've been instructing. Spurgeon's Catechism has about 107 questions, and the other ones are a little bit more, but I'll never forget the day. We were instructing her in the Catechism, and she stopped and she said, Oh, now I see. Moms and dads, you got to put it in. If you want it to come out, giggo. There's so much garbage going into the minds and hearts of children, some of them under the guise of Sunday school curriculum. Man-centered, humanistic kinds of teachings. Solid scripture is what will change children's hearts. Those of you that are responsible for the Christian ministry of, of Living Legacy, take that to heart and pray and ask God for wisdom in developing and doing what God wants us to do to train children. So Jesus says, yeah, I heard you. I hear them, and I'll receive their praise too. 
Jesus receives such praise because why? He's king. He never rebuked them. He never stopped them from doing it. Well, the four characteristics of the kingdom of King Jesus now, verified by he fulfilling the four Old Testament passages, is this. He gives us the nature and focus of his kingdom, the primary characteristic of his kingdom being prayer. It's a kingdom of compassion and joy, and it's an inclusive. No prejudice in the kingdom of God. There's a big push in America, safechildren.org. I believe that there are many parents who may even know Christ who are more concerned with the haven of walls in a school than they are about the souls of their children at home. The safest place a child can be is in the care and love of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Moms and dads, that's your job. Not mine, not the Sunday school teachers, not anybody. That's your job. Safehaven.org. So verse 10, the question. Here's the question. The crowds heard all this and they said, who is this? And notice the answer. A prophet. A, a prophet? Really? Well, yeah, he is a prophet, but is that all he is? The city was stirred by the procession that accompanied Jesus. What an opportunity for those who knew something about Jesus to speak up and say. Remember, most of these people in the crowd were praising Jesus and shouting Hosanna. They were either from Galilee or they were the ones present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They had seen so much. They had heard him teach. They had only minutes before been shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Yet, instead of boldly proclaiming him as the son of David, the Messiah and the king, what did they say? He's the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Yes, he is a prophet, but they failed to recognize who he really is on this day. The king is here. May I say to you this morning, the king is here. He is present in his word, by his spirit, in the praises of his people. The king is here. They didn't discern who he was. And I I say, without judging anyone, I think much of professing Christianity is no different today People say all sorts of things about Jesus, even true things, but they don't really believe it or fully understand it or act on it. There are some people who call Jesus a great teacher or a philosopher, but they don't study what he taught, nor do they follow his teachings or philosophy. Some admit he was a great example, but they don't follow it. Why, in our day, to speak of Jesus in a positive way is still very popular, especially at Christmas time. And I quote, How many of the wonderful Christmas carols are sung for personal profit by unconverted secular musicians who do not even know Jesus as Lord and Savior? Many people claim Jesus as their Savior, yet they're still busy trying to save themselves. They're not resting completely and totally in the finished work of Christ as their hope of salvation. Their piety and good works are not done because of salvation. It's to try to earn salvation. And Titus reminds us it's not by works that saves us. Other people claim to know Jesus. They claim to love Him, and yet they refuse to give up their sin and follow Him. And in truth, 
They're liars. Jesus said this in John 14, three times. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. If anyone will love me, he will keep my word. And he that does not love me does not keep my words. And still finally, there are others. They may even really believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, but out of fear, they will not tell other people. Certainly that day in the crowd, there were those who knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were afraid to say so. Why? They were afraid of the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees. They let fear control them. And I think today the same thing is true in many cases. Dear people, let us not be like that fickle crowd that surrounded Jesus that day, proclaiming one thing, but practicing another. That God would impress upon our hearts today that Jesus Christ the King has come. He's on His throne. He is sovereignly overseeing all that's happening in the world. He's not caught by surprise by anything. He's not wringing his hands in heaven saying, oh my goodness, there goes something else I didn't plan. What are we going to do? Holy Spirit and Father, come, let's have a quick mini-meeting. We've got to change this. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then worship him. Obey him. Serve him. And boldly proclaim him every chance you get. He is my king. My friend, if you're here and you don't know him, this day confess that he is, and find out who he really is. If you have any questions about Jesus, do not leave this building today until you approach someone and ask the same question that the crowds asked. Who is this? Who is this guy, Jesus? And I close, as I promised, with Mr. Piper's words, having borrowed some of his thoughts. I'll close with his thoughts. Here's the concluding declaration and invitation. Jesus came the first time, but he's coming again as king over all kings. King of Israel, king of the nations, king of nature, and king of the universe. Until he comes again, this is the day of amnesty. This is the day of forgiveness. This is the day of God's patience. He still rides on a donkey, and not yet, but soon will be riding on a white war horse with a rod of iron. He is ready to save every person who comes to him as Savior and treasure and King. Come to Him. Know Him. Receive Him. And live your life in allegiance to Him. Why? Because He's worthy. He's worthy. Let's pray.